Today's sermon is titled, Called to Endurance and Faith. We are called to endurance and faith. Um, if you want a digital copy of the notes, um, all the scriptural verses are hyperlinked in there. So you click the blue and it takes you to it. So it's kind of fun to have those digital copies. Um, we've already distributed physical copies. So uh, moving on. So called to endurance and faith, living in the light of victory of Jesus. We have victory in Jesus, our Savior forever, right? He sought us and he bought us with his redeeming blood. And, and we need to know that. We need to live in that truth. Church, faith and endurance are practiced by having the right perspective, not just in the big things. The big thing is he saved me right? But in the mundane, in, in the minutia of life, we must see Jesus' victory in the minutia, in the little things. And the fact that I had the grace to get out of bed this morning and take a breath, the fact that I have the grace and the redemptive power that God has given me a toothbrush and toothpaste to use to freshen my breath and remove, well, prevent cavities. I haven't ever got removed cavities once I went to the dentist, right? The praise of the dentist, right? God is working in all of that. Maybe you woke up this morning and you had a pain. Maybe you had multiple pains. I want to tell you this morning, God is working in that. The victory of Jesus, the cross, and the resurrection touches every single minutia of all life. Every little detail. From the huge relational problem that you have with somebody that just seems so big it can't be resolved. Down to your breath. That's the power of the gospel. The victory that we have in Jesus. Now, it is then that we have a proper perspective on the whole of life's valleys and mountaintops. How many here have valleys? Right? How many here have mountaintops? Right? How many have more valleys and mountaintops more regularly than it seems like some people? Right? Yeah. I mean, sure, sure, right? So the valleys are the hardest to keep perspective on, aren't they? Right? That's when you, like, when you're on the mountaintop, God's so good, look what he's doing, right? When you're in the valley, you're like, where is he? Why is he doing this to me? And, I, and part of that's an ethic, okay, that, that Americans have. It's an American And it's kind of like a human ethic, too, in the sense that we value our comfort and we value our status. And when our comfort and our status is being pressed in on, then we often get mad at God. Or this, maybe not mad, but at least disgruntled. Okay? But that's because we have caught that. That's not a godly ethic. Does that make sense? For this life, right? But for the next. But they are caused by the chaos of the devil, his angels, and his children of wrath. 
brokenness of this world. Yet God, yet God, through Jesus, redeems every valley. Through Jesus, every valley is redeemed. Romans 5, 1 through 5, reminds of our proper perspective of this life. Let's look at it now. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen, a hallelujah? Because that is the best news of the day. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. What do we stand? In the grace of God, not in the judgment of God, not in the condemnation of God, but in the grace of God of the cross, the power of the resurrection. We stand in that and we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. God's coming again. God's glory in the redemption of the minutia. That's what we rejoice in. Do I rejoice in the minutiae? Do I rejoice in the valley? Do I rejoice in the, the brokenness? Do I, do I put, no, I rejoice in God's glory that God is working that brokenness for his good. He can take something as evil and something as desperate as the cross and make it the salvation for the world. And if he can take the cross and make it the salvation of the world, then he can take your backache. He can take your relational issue. He can take your thoughts. He can take whatever it is that's going on in your life today that's wrong and sideways, and he uses it to mold you and shape you into his image and prepare you for an eternity. And that's the truth, church. That's what it says here. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, a call to endurance, a call to faith. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love, God's love, church, not God's judgment, not God's uh, critical eye, but God's love has been poured, not sprinkled, not, not measured out in a measuring cup, but he took the whole cooler, the whole of the Holy Spirit, and he poured it out into your heart, into your life, through the Spirit of God who's been given to us, who is our mark, our seal upon us. And this is the perspective in which we are going to hold as we go through Revelation 13. But this is also the perspective that we need to have as we walk through life. Because I, I know each one of you. And I know to a certain extent that each one of you have things going on. I wanted to use a different word, but I chose that. That is not fun. Right? We all do. And I know that because we live in a broken, messed up world. And we ourselves are broken and messed up. And that affects us, doesn't it? But I got good news. God is using our very brokenness to change us, to mold us. And he is in the business of healing our brokenness. Not fast enough sometimes, huh? But he's in the business of doing that. So church, though Satan should buffet, 
though trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless, our helpless, our helpless estate, helpless, and shed his own blood for my sake. Revelation 13 is the consummation of chaos in Scripture. The second coming, the day of the Lord, is the consummation of, of Christ, the, of coming back. Revelation 13 is the consummation of chaos in Scripture. Satan, the Lord of chaos, will be allowed to fulfill his plan of placing himself as God. Through his dominance over the world, causing all to worship him as an unholy trinity. He is, Satan is, a counterfeiter. He appears as an angel of light. He is not an angel of light. He's the father of lies, right? He is a counterfeiter. And in this consummation of his chaos, he counterfeits the trinity and the mark, the seal of Yahweh. He counterfeits those things. God, in his great wisdom, allows this to happen as part of his judgment. Again, here, God is using a bad thing to accomplish his purpose, and the purpose of Satan doing all of this is part of God's judgment of the world and the refinement, the refinement of his saints. So as we go through this chapter on the consummation of chaos, let us not have a spirit of what, church? Fear. We don't need to fear. Because Christ is victorious. We have victory in Jesus, our Savior forever. For he bought us and he sought us with his redeeming blood. So we have no need to fear. Do you understand? This is not a chapter to get scared about, to worry about. Because who has us? And if God is for us, who can be against us? For he freely gave up his own son, right? The Old Testament background for Revelation 13 is found in Job chapter 40, 15 through 24, Job chapter 41, Daniel 7. And, and the, especially if you read it, the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, which is the translation John is drawing from, quoting from. Behemoth is from the earth. And Leviathan is from the sea. They are chaos symbols in the Old Testament and will be destroyed as chaos symbols in the day of the Lord. Now, I know and I totally agree that these are also dinosaurs. It's not a hippo. It's not an elephant. They're dinosaurs. Leviathan is a, a sea dinosaur, okay? And Behemoth is a land dinosaur. But if you lived back then with the dinosaurs, and I believe we did, uh, humanity did, these would be terrifying creatures. I mean, you've watched uh, Jurassic Park, right? And seen the T-Rex just totally annihilate, right? But that's what these creatures will seem like. So in their might and in their brutality, they are chaos creatures. So it's both and. You don't have to pick. I don't, I, I don't know why scholars always think, oh, it's just chaos creatures. It can't be real creatures. It's both, church. Okay? It's both. But it's not an elephant. It's not a hippo. <laughs> I don't know why scholars do that either. 
but they come, the behemoth comes from the earth, and Leviathan comes to, from the sea. They are chaos symbols in the Old Testament brought into the consummation of chaos in Revelation 13. There's two beasts, one from the sea and one from the earth. And they will be destroyed. The beast from the sea is a uh, compiled, com yeah, I'm not saying my word right now, compilation of all the four beasts of Daniel. So your homework is to go read Daniel, uh, Job 41 uh, and 40 and read Daniel 7. I, I don't have time to read it today, but you should read that because it's important to understanding at least the technicalities of Revelation 13. It's not important to understanding the message of chapter 13, which is we are called to endurance and faith, and we are equipped by the victory of Christ through the resurrection, through the cross, to accomplish that. Good news, church. These beasts are all destroyed. Satan loses. Neither chaos nor the Lord of chaos reign, and Jesus redeems just everybody else but me? No, he redeems all things. Church, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance confer that Christ, Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my sin. Revelation 13. We're finally there. I already got cotton mouth. And I saw the beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, with seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. The Futurist interprets the beast as the revived Roman Empire led by the Antichrist. Sometime in the future, we don't know when. The Preterist interprets the beast as the Roman Empire back in AD 60 with Nero as the Antichrist. The Idealist interprets the beast as the consummation of chaos that has been acting in creation since the fall of spiritual beings, of whom Satan takes center stage in which humanity is participating. Who ate the apples, right? Who laid with angels, right? Who built the Tower of Babel, right? Humans, right? But that is not void of spiritual interaction, right? Who deceived Eve? A serpent, Satan, right? Who laid women, angels of some sort, right? So what is the significance of the beast rising out of the sea? The sea is a symbol of chaos. And the place of the dead in the Old Testament. Not the, not the surface sea, but an undersea. The Lord of chaos servant rises from the sea and in Revelation 11.7, he is said to rise from the abyss. These locations are one and the same as illustrated in Exodus 24 in the terminology of the water under the earth. You shall not make for yourself a carved, a 
carved image that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. What is the significance of the ten horns that he has? Well, Daniel 7.24 says that the ten horns represent ten kings. It doesn't name them. We just know that there are ten kings. When I was growing up, uh, the, the cuspers of, of prophets, or you know, prophecy buffs, thought it was the European Union. Okay? And they were like all like, oh, this is the worst thing ever. Well, now the European Union is more than ten nations. So we don't know the ten kings. We don't know who they are. And it is not profitable, it is not profitable to the church to speculate on the identity of these kings. I'm not going to spend time doing that. Only God knows who these ten kings are. Let us not waste time in speculation and instead focus on knowing what God is, that God is faithful and will mold us in this life for the next. No matter what happens. God is faithful and walking in our lives. So what is the significance of the seven heads? According to Revelation 17, 9-10, they are the seven mountains that the great prostitute is seated upon. They are also seven kings. This is paired with the fourth beast of Daniel in 7.15-28, and it points to the kingdom of Rome. Which Rome depends on the lens that you are wearing. Okay? Makes sense. What is the significance of ten diadems on its horns? Well, diadem is the transliteration of the Greek word for a king's crown, a crown of ruling, a crown of power. It is in contrast to the victor's crown, known as a stephanos in the Greek. So it is to speak of king kings with power, right? Because they are wearing diadems, ten of them. What is the significance of blasphemous name on its heads? These kings are totally opposed to God and his plans and will actively walk against God. They're not passive. They're actively walking against God and his plans. That's what it means with these blasphemous names. But there's good news, right? There is such good news. There is victory, victory in Jesus. Revelation 17, 14 says, They will make war, those kings, those beasts, will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Say, I am called. Say, I am chosen. Say, I am faithful. Because God has caused that in my life. If we've confessed Jesus as Lord. Victory in Jesus. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. And that is our reality. That is the truth that we need to live in. Verse 2. And the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. 
John here takes all four beasts of Daniel 7 and makes a chimera of the beast from the sea. The leopard in scripture speaks of swiftness, stealth, and ambush. So these attributes are given to this beast. The bear in scripture speaks of fierce strength. So this attribute is given to the beast. He's swift. He he's, has ambush. He's stealthy, but he's strong, right? The, the lion's mouth in scripture speaks of devouring its prey. He, he consumes anything that opposes him, right? This is a scary, scary dude if we don't have who on our side. If God is for us, then who can be against us? The beast's power comes from Satan. That dragon of old, that beast acts on behalf of Satan. The church has, who has more power? Jesus. Who has more power? Thank you. You guys got to engage with me a little bit here. You're not sleeping, I hope. So may we say to our souls, be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. God is with you. He's on your side. Revelation 14, 3 through 4 says, One of its heads seems to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Well, we know who can fight against it, right? This is Satan counterfeiting Christ's death and resurrection. He had a wound and it was healed. He died and he was risen again with his own. The world worships Satan, but will not, we will not fall for the lies of the enemy. For we are aware of his schemes. We know he's a liar. We know he's a counterfeiter. We know he is deceptive. We know he goes forth like an angel of light. We won't fall for his schemes because we stand in God's armor, the armor of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. For God can beat the beast every day. We are more. We are more than conquerors through Jesus. This is a QR code for an awesome song on that by Michael W. Smith. So if you want to listen to that, scan that QR code. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty, blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blasphemies his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. The beast, he wages war with his mouth, like the Leviathan in John 41, 19, who breathes fire. These fiery wars are against God, against the heavenly host, against his saints. The concept, Paige Patterson says, of blasphemy is more than this failure to believe in God and endorse his programs and ways. It is an active repugnance and open opposition to the creator God. However, his time to act, Satan's time to act in direct defiance is limited 
It's limited by God to 42 months. That's the time of this consummation of Cana. Satan is on God's time. He's on God's time. So the futurist interprets these 42 months taking place at the last half of Daniel's 70th week. The preterist interprets these 42 months as taking place in the siege of Jerusalem, which started in 66 AD and finished in 70 AD. The idealist interprets these 42 months as symbolizing the consummation of chaos and the persecution of the church for an undefined amount of time, meaning it just symbolizes persecution and the end of Satan. So it's not totally undefined. Because it'll stop when Satan's done. Whose timetable is Satan on? He's on God's timetable, isn't he? That was slick. Revelation 13, 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And the authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Two words here, allowed and given, right? Very important. The word allowed is the key, vo- key to this verse. God allowed him to kill the saints. God allowed him to rule the whole earth as it is judgment, as it is a judgment on it. It is allowed. This seems wrong. Why would God allow evil to happen, Right? If we value this life more than the next, and oftentimes we do, and that's why we wrestle with the persecution and the suffering that we are going through, because we value our comfort in this present time more than we value our eternity. However, death, church, death and suffering is not the end, but the gateway. It's the gateway to victory, the victory of eternal life, victory in Jesus, right? And that's what we wait for. That's what we look forward to. I was listening to uh, Founders Week this week, and uh, on the second night, Pastor Chris Brooks uh, preached, and he quoted a dear congregant of his who was fighting cancer. And we, we, uh, we have congregants of ourselves who are fighting different illnesses. But this dear congregant of his, everybody was praying for his healing. Everybody was praying for his, for his restoration physically. And, but this deal congregant said, this man's prayer to God was, Lord, glorify yourself, even at my expense. Wow. God is allowing the death of his saints for his glory. Do I understand it? No. Do I get it? No. Do I know God works in ways that I cannot see? Oh, yeah. But I know that God is using whatever you are in right now for his glory. And may we, and my prayer for us all is that we know what we have in Christ. And that we want to live and die for his glory. That we would make that prayer of that man. Lord, for your glory, even at my own expense. 
Because I think, yes, I think we say all the time, glory to God, glory to God, yeah. Oh, no, not if it costs that. Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundations of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, it's interesting. The Greek can talk about having been written before the foundations of the world. The foundations of the world can actually apply to both the Lamb who was slain and written in, in the Lamb's book of life. So if you're reading like the King James or I think the Net Bible, they change that up, okay? So it would be the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. But either way, they're both theologically sound, okay? Your name is written. Well, in the book of life. If you confess Jesus' name and Jesus as Lord, your name is written in the book of life. How it got there, God wrote it there. When it got there, I think before the foundations of the world, but that's debatable. For a study on the book of life, lesson 2, 81623. There's a QR code uh, for that study. Who worships the beast? Do Christians worship the beast? No. Those who are not gods worship the beast. And so I ask you, whose are you? Have you confessed Jesus as Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Are you walking in relationship with God every single day? Right? Then if you are, can you declare this with me? We all should know this, probably. Can you declare this with me? There is a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. And the robed angels sing the story, and a sinner has come home. For there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. My sins forgiven. I am bound for heaven, nevermore to roam. Amen? Because that is our reality. That is the work of the cross. That is the victory of Jesus. Verse 9, if anyone has ear, let him hear. Check your ears. We all got ears. I didn't take the, cut mine off, so it didn't apply to me anymore. Sometimes you want to, don't you? Like, I don't want that to apply to me. I don't want to hear that. Na, 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 na. No, na, 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 na. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. This is the pinnacle of this whole passage. A call for endurance and faith. And we have endurance and we have faith by walking in the victory that Jesus has purchased for us and given freely to us. That's how we have endurance, and that's how we have faith. John is using verse 9 to call his readers to attention. Listen up, for this phrase closes each of the letters of the seven churches. So what are we to hear? We are to hear that there is persecution and trial for the people of God. I know. We cringe. I cringe. I don't want that message. I want to tell you there is like apple pie every day and you don't get fat, you know. I want to tell you that, you know, 
you can have health, wealth, and happiness. But that's not the point of this life. There is an abundance of life with Jesus, but it's not that. That's not what he's talking about. The abundance is in the relationship with him. It's in sharing life with him. It's in seeing that he takes every trial and every persecution and he turns it to a victory. He redeems it. Because the reality is, persecution and trial has been the reality for Christians across history, and it really is across the globe today. Remember three or four Sundays ago, just last year, over 5,000 Christians died for their faith. Millions of Christians are oppressed and persecuted for their faith today. And just because we live in a comfortable place where we have freedom of religion doesn't mean that that's what God has for everybody. And it doesn't mean that we won't receive some persecution. And it doesn't mean that we're void of trials because we live in a broken world. And we ourselves are broken. Now, he's changing us. He's helping our brokenness and, and refining it. But we won't be totally whole until we see him. So let us respond to the call of endurance and faith. Faith is the purpose and promise of God. Faith in the purpose and promise of God makes endurance possible. Endurance, on the other hand, is the sure, visible outworking of the inner faith that provides the impetus for obedience to God, even under intractable circumstances. Paige Patterson. Church, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance console that Jesus hath regarded your helpless estate and shed his own blood for our souls. Revelation 13, 11 through 12 says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth that had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises the authority of all the authority of the fourth beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the fourth beast whose mortal wound was healed. If one beast was not bad enough, there is a second beast who is known as the false prophet. This beast, like behemoth in Job, comes from the earth. It's like the lamb, but it's not the lamb. For it speaks like the dragon, like the father of lies. So Matthew 17, 7, 15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in lambs or sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves, so like a dragon devouring you. This second beast, verse 14, it performs great signs and even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to walk in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet live. The false prophet's goal is to deceive the world into worshiping the Antichrist. See, that's his whole function. He's functioning as the third person of the Trinity. Uh, he does this with signs and wonders. He tells them to make an image of the fourth beast, 
breaking the second commandment, right? You shall not make for yourself a carved image, uh, any likeness of anything, right? He breaks that commandment. So Habakkuk says about that, woe to him who says to the wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. The Old Testament sees idols, the Old Testament Jews sees idols as lifeless, with no breath in them. Yet, here the false prophet goes a step further and gives the image breath for speech. He's like, yeah, you said that about me? Watch this. Right? He's showing off. He then slays those who do not worship the image of the beast. And this, of course, brings us back to Daniel 3. Nebuchadnezzar, he rose a statue, right? An image of gold. It was huge. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They were to worship the statue. But they would not worship the image, would they? They did not bow down. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace. We all know this story. And church, who met them in the furnace? He was in the furnace. There was four in the furnace. How many did we throw in there? Three. No, there's four. And one is like a God, the son of a God. One is like the son of God. You're in a fire right now. But Jesus is there. And you have to have the faith to choose that faith, that decision, that gift that he's given you, that he is using that fire to mold you for eternity and for his glory. He will meet you in the trial. I love this. Every day the Lord himself is near me with a special mercy for each hour. All my cares he fain would bear and cheer me, he whose name is Counselor and Power. The protection of his child and treasure is a charge that on he himself be laid. As the days thy strength shall be in measure, this is the pledge to me he made. Revelation 13, 16 says, also it causes the beast both small, great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast, the number of its name. This is a call for wisdom. Let the one who understand, has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is... 666. Some translations say 616. For the study on the mark of the beast, you need to listen to Wednesday's study on 1011. I'm not going to go into the mark of the beast today. The false prophet caused the beast followers to be marked. Here he is counterfeiting. I want to make it clear. He's counterfeiting the mark that Jesus and the seal that Yahweh, Jesus, has placed on his own. If you have been marked by Yahweh, if you have the mark of Yahweh, the seal of the Holy Spirit, who's been poured out on you, right, to show God's love 
to you. If you have that seal, you cannot take the mark of God's enemy. Because the mark is a symbol of who you belong to. You are God's and not the enemy's. If you confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are not the enemy's. You are whose? God's. You belong to him. You can't take the mark. So don't stress about the mark. Because it's, it's, it's pointless. Because you've already aligned yourself with God. So Christians then, followers of Jesus, will not be able to participate, though, in society at this time period. The buying and selling of goods. I spent most of the day of Friday buying goods. I wish I could have sold some because that would have compensated all that I bought. But I spent most of the day Friday buying goods, shopping uh, for this trip I'm going on, shopping for just household stuff. But in the last half of the tribulation, that will not be happening for Christians. For it will be a time of persecution and oppression. But praise God, that's not the totality of the Christian life. And we keep perspective and tell our souls, be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joy restored, be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. Church, we all declare, whatever my lot, whatever my lot, I live for God's glory, for it is well with my soul. Say that with me. Whatever my lot, I live for God's glory, for it is well with my soul. Please stand and sing with us, it is well.